What was the name of the horse Paul Revere rode on his famous midnight ride? War Admiral, Brown Beauty, or Liberty? Welcome to Trivial Context, the weekly podcast where we answer the most popular trivia questions and learn a little more along the way. I'm Sean Riley. And I'm Brooke Riley. And I don't remember the multiple choice questions, but there's no way I'd get it right. So well, you got a one, you got a thirty-three percent chance. Mm-hmm. War Admiral, Brown Beauty, or Liberty? I'm gonna say Brown Beauty. I also am gonna say Brown Beauty. You're right. It was owned by Samuel Larkin and loaned to Revere by his son. Thanks, Revere's son. <laughs> Since we both got the question right, either one of us can go first. I think you went first last time, so would you like me to go first? Yeah. All right. We each researched today's topic based on one of the six trivia categories randomly chosen last week, but not so much because this is the last one of our first rotation. That's true, yeah. So we did art and literature of the six categories. This is number six for this time. We will roll a die at the end of this episode, however, to determine the first one of the next rotation, but it's all open. It could be a new. Yeah. To start my topic, I will ask Brooke. Don't look at my computer. I didn't. Okay. What book series is commonly referred to as the greatest fantasy epic of our time? Well, define our time. (laughs) My initial answer would be Harry Potter. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. And then if you expand our time, I think it would be like The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings. Good job. Is that it? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It is specifically the Lord of the Rings. We should probably say, I have real bad allergies today. Yeah, I think maybe it was two or three episodes ago, I felt really sick because of allergies, and the coin has been flipped. Yeah, I woke up with them real bad. Mm -hmm. So there might be a little coughing. Yeah. And uh, at risk of sounding like like a fake fan... I haven't finished reading Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I am about a quarter of the way through the third book. I read the first two in, I would say, about a month, or probably about two months, uh, a month each. And I started the third one around the same time we started this podcast. And I have not read it with the same speed or gusto as the other ones, because a lot of my free time has gone to this. <laughs> Yeah. Now to start, who is J.R.R. Tolkien? That's where I'll, I'll begin my report. He was born John Ronald Real Tolkien in Bloemfontein, South Africa. Oh. Yeah, in 1892. January 3rd, 1892, to be specific. His family returned to England. John was an orphan, losing his dad when he was four, and his mom at 12. Wow. After a bit of shuffling around, he was eventually taken in and cared for by a Catholic priest called Father Francis. Jumping forward a bit, when Tolkien was 16, he met a 19-year-old named Edith. Ooh. Yeah. Sparks were a-flying. Until Father Francis claimed their relationship was scandalously inappropriate because Edith was a Protestant. (gasps) Mm Mm-hmm. Father Francis, in fact, forbade Tolkien, or John, to see Edith until he was 21. And the night of his 21st birthday, he wrote Edith a letter, which included a proposal. Wow. 
I actually find their love story or just story very, very cute. They had four children together. And one of Tolkien's short stories, a novel called Baron and Luthien. And the plot is a mortal fell in love with the immortal daughter of the elven king after watching her dance in a glade or whatever. This idea was based off of Tolkien seeing Edith like dancing in a grove of trees. And he took this idea to the grave as on their shared headstone, Luthien is under Edith's name, while Baron is under Tolkien's. Cute. Very cute. Alright, Brooke. You Have... done? <laughs> Have you heard that, I guess you could call it, I don't want to say fact, <laughs> urban myth, but I also don't want to say that, that people can't not learn more than seven languages? No. Have you heard anything about how many languages somebody can hear? No. Yes, I have. <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> if you were to hazard a guess, how many languages would like it be possible to learn? I'd say all of them, but I feel like that's... Oh, uh, ten. Okay. I'm going to just restart all this. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no worries at all. I think you can leave this in. Like, it's funny. Okay, okay, all right. Well, I've cut that out, but... Yes, 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 yes. So growing up, I had always heard, like... An urban legend, I guess, an urban myth that you cannot learn more than seven languages, mm. despite what other people may or may not have heard. <laughs> this is not true. And I think Tolkien is a great example of this. In his life, he was, a, he was fluent in English, Good. Finnish, Norwegian, Spanish, Dutch, Welsh, Danish, French, German, and Italian. And he wasn't satisfied with languages he could actually use to communicate with somebody with, for he also learned a series of dead languages. Old English, Old Norse, Middle English, Medieval Welsh, Gothic language, <laughs> and Old, Isla Old Icelandic, as well as Latin and Greek. Well, Greek is spoken, but yeah. Old Greek as well. Interesting that he learned Old Icelandic and not like, Modern Icelandic. What do Modern Icelandic people speak? Icelandic. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds very, like, Scandinavian. Reykjavik. To me, yeah. Yeah, that only city anyone ever knows, Reykjavik. Yeah. You're, like, driving along, and the name of the town is, like, a lane just, wide. <laughs> yeah, just consonants. Every consonant in the alphabet. Yeah. It's a cool language. I just it's not, yeah. literally know none of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Still unsatisfied... Tolkien decided to craft some languages of his own, and in his life constructed 12. Wow. These weren't any pseudo-languages like Pig Latin either. They were real languages. He uh, created his own alphabet, which you can see in The Lord of the Rings. That's cool. Yeah. He is pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> in the 1930s, Tolkien was working as the professor of Anglo-Saxon at Oxford University. It's often reported that during this time at Oxford, he felt a little restless he wanted to stretch his own literary feet more or literary legs more or less and it said he put down his students coursework and picked up a blank sheet of paper he wrote the hobbit one of the most popular children's stories of all time it was published in 1937 was an immediate success and is still or has been in print ever since that's impressive it is impressive. I did not know it was a children's story until yeah. researching this. I was surprised it's classified as children's. Yeah. I, w I wonder if 
Lord of the Rings is classified as a children's story because I tried to read it when I was 12 and thought it was so boring. Yeah, but you have to think. Times were different then. That is like true. Style People writing. were smarter. <laughs> <laughs> Talking was so different. Uh, absolutely. I tried to read Lord of the Rings three times before this current time. And every single time I would get to about the same part where it would go in excruciating detail in the first book about this feast that they were having and the music and all of the poetry that they would read. And I was like, wow, okay, like just push through, push through. I always heard if you push through, you, you end up loving it. So I would try to do that. I would get to this feast, muscle on through one time. Well, first two times I couldn't get through it. Third time, muscled through it. They went to sleep for that night, woke up the next morning, and they said, let's have another feast. And I said, nope. And I closed the book. <laughs> you were not interested in second breakfast. No. <laughs> Reading it this most recent time, they don't actually have that feast. So if I had kept going for just another sentence, I would have been fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe enjoyed it much earlier. That's funny. This is a fun story I thought I could share. Because of its immediate worldwide success, according to Newsweek, a publisher in Berlin wrote to Tolkien to ask about printing a German translation of The Hobbit. But before they could do that, Tolkien had to prove he had, quote, Aryan descent. Tolkien was disgusted by the letter and later told his publisher, quote, let a German translation go hang. <laughs> Close quote. Then he wrote back in his response, he said, I'm not of Aryan extraction, that is, Indo-Urania, as far as I'm aware, None of my ancestors spoke Hindustani, Persian, Gypsy, or any related dialects. But if I'm to understand that you are inquiring whether I am of Jewish origin, I can only reply that I regret that I, that I appear to have no ancestors of that gifted people. Mm. Good Close on them. Very cool, <laughs> yeah. It's noted that Tolkien, especially for his time, was a staunch anti-racist. Which is always nice to hear. Yeah, usually it's like, well, they really, like, they did this really successful thing, but they were super... Yeah, I I don't know if I would say I am a fan of H.P. Lovecraft, but I am a fan of kind of the movement that he started. Mm-hmm. Uh, horror stories? Just like sci-fi, kind of like modern horror sci-fi, or even not even horror. Yeah. But yeah, he's a huge racist. Like, yeah. and that's just hard to get over. Raul Dahl? Huge mm-hmm. racist? Mm-hmm. Wow, that is a bummer. Yep. And you can see this in the Lord of the Rings. I would say there's definitely no racism in Lord of the Rings. But uh, there is not, however, a lot in the way of inclusion. There's not really any people of color in Lord of the Rings. But, you know, there's dwarves, there's elves, there's orcs, I guess. There's different kinds of representation. Exactly. Not any that anybody can relate to, but representation nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't we get into... Lord of the Rings. Let's do it. It was written between 1937 and 1949, so pretty much immediately after The Hobbit, he started working on this. It's a long time. Yeah. It's even said that all of these books together, Lord of the Rings, Hobbit, and The Silmarillion later on, are all part of Tolkien's Mythopoeia, which is his interconnected world. (laughs) It has its own, like, history, its own kind of god structure which I will talk about later. And this Mythopoeia was started in about 1917. So he had been working on The Hobbit, well, thinking about what The Hobbit would be for 20 years before The Hobbit came out. Mm -hmm. Another 10 years after The Hobbit came out, was working on 
its sequel series, The Lord of the Rings. It was published, all three books, which are, I guess, all three parts, split up internally into six books, were published from 1954 to 1955. So very quickly after another. Yeah. It sold over 150 million copies and is one of the best-selling books of all time. As for what is in it, the prose is, I would say, pretty classic English of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are over 60 pieces of poetry throughout. By the Journal of Tolkien Research, the poetry is essential for the fiction to work aesthetically and thematically, as it, add, as it adds info not given in the prose, and it brings out characters and their backgrounds. Poems or songs include wandering, marching to war, drinking, and having a bath, narrating ancient myths, riddles, charms, elegies, and heroic actions are found in old English poetry. So poetry was definitely a huge deal. Uh, as for the themes, you can definitely see there's a, there's a heavy Christian influence. And later Tolkien said, as he was writing the, the three books at the same time, it was not intentional until it was pointed out to him as he was like working with his publisher on the third book. And at which point he went, he went back into the first and second book and intentionally made it more Christian. Mm. Uh, again, Tolkien is a Roman Catholic. And he gives kind of three Jesus archetypes in it. Like Frodo's kind of Jesus, Aragorn's kind of Jesus, and Gandalf's kind of Jesus. And you can see Gandalf probably the most clearly as he falls into the dark world or whatever, finding the Balrog, and comes back a a little while later as Gandalf the White and all that stuff. Uh, Another theme is militarization and industrialization. Tolkien grew up in like country England on the outskirts of Birmingham, England, which is industrializing like crazy. And you can see like he kind of wants to go back to the country that he, that he grew up with as a child. This is mostly through the character of Sauron, shown in the books through the character of Sauron and his forces. The plot of Lord of the Rings is a reversed quest. Instead of going out to get an item, they already have it and are off to destroy it. This was kind of like the first big reverse quest. One time I was actually talking to somebody about a story that they were uh, coming up with, they were writing, and they were talked about it as a reverse Lord of the Rings. So a regular. Yeah, so I thought that was funny. I was like, oh, so just quest. just a regular quest, yeah. <laughs> Not everything about Lord of the Rings was praised, or The Hobbit. A lot of Tolkien's peers... Uh, kind of ragged on it a little bit. That being said, C.S. Lewis read it and loved it, which is cool. They were good friends apparently growing up, huh. or or in uh, or their early academic years. Yeah. Uh, some of the criticisms against this book is that it's men pretending to be boys, which I could kind of see, but I think that's more of Tolkien knowing his audience than it is meant to be a statement about humanity. Yeah. And that it is anti-female. And I will agree, there's not really any female leads. Mm-hmm. But three of the most like powerful characters are female. Like Lady Arwen and Galadriel. Really important people in the story. Uh, it's funny, all of these anti-female critiques come from men. So I would like to see what 
woman. I, I did try to find it, and it's hard to find, like, peer-reviewed mm-hmm. critiques. I'll say this. My coworker, her favorite books are these. Yeah. And she's very, I'd say, like, into equality. and That's good. Very Me too, I would, I would hope. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I'm just saying, like, I've never heard heard her say anything yeah to that effect and i think if it bothered her a they wouldn't be her favorite books and b she would like bring that up maybe in conversation yeah. so <laughs> yeah so again it, it goes back to like not a lot of representation mm-hmm. tolkien passed away in the early 70s a lot of what we have now like his beowulf translation i didn't even talk about that but he translated beowulf for us Huh. Yeah. <laughs> cool. <laughs> and a lot of the Silmarillion and all this stuff was published posthumously by his son Christopher. And finally, uh, the Lord of the Rings movies by Peter Jackson are three really good movies. And that's pretty much all I have to say about those. <laughs> <laughs> they follow the book very well, and I think the points where they deviate from the book are for its benefit. We didn't get no Tom Bombadil, but that's okay. Yeah, who needs him? Yeah. Everything he says is written in meter. All right, that is my report on Lord of the Rings. Nice. It was good to hear. I I know that that was kind of like a groundbreaking genre, I guess. Yeah. So. Groundbreaking movement of, like, literature. Yeah. It's pretty important. Yeah, and, like, I uh, had heard that going, you know, on every single uh, one of our books, it says the greatest fantasy epic of our time on, mm-hmm. on them in big purple letters. And, yeah, I can definitely see why. After researching it. Well, you ran with the literature, and I ran with the art. Perfect. And actually, there's a lot of similarities between our topics. Oh, yeah. Uh, I will say, Tolkien also was an artist. And that's the end of that. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You can see a few things in Lord of the Rings that he himself has drawn. And, of course, he came up with his own alphabet, which is very, like, cool, I think. Well, my person was also into writing. (gasps) Whoa. (laughs) All right. Who is the most famous Norwegian artist? And what is his iconic painting? Well, I do not know. (laughs) I don't even know how to hazard a guess. Yeah, I... Don't think I could have told you the name, but I think I could have told you... About him a little bit. No, about the painting. Oh, okay. The answer is The Scream by Edvard Munch. Oh, okay. Are you familiar with that? The Scream, yeah. Yes. The bald man holding his face yes. on a bridge. Is the bridge thing right? Yes. Oh, good. Okay. So, I chose this topic for a couple reasons. As we've mentioned before, we're not very, like, art or literature-y people. <laughs> But I was more more literary than we are artistic. Yeah. The Scream by Edvard Munch. And this is a quote from the Architectural Digest. There are, there are perhaps a handful of paintings so iconic they've come to represent images of our time. Van Gogh's Starry Night, Picasso's Guernica, Da Vinci's Mona Lisa, and Munch's The Scream are a few that come to mind. So well-researched are these works that nearly nothing new is left to explore with them. We visualize them in the same way as a can of Coca-Cola or McDonald's Golden Arches. <laughs> it's funny. I never think about examining art. Yeah. Like, people could write a thesis 
on the way Munch stroked or his uh, brush strokes. Uh-huh. Fun fact, when I was researching, I came across this website. And I was like, mm, this kind of feels sketchy. I don't know if I should believe it. But then at the bottom, it was like written by a man who got his like PhD in uh-huh. Munch and his life and stuff. And I was like, like that's probably yeah. like pretty good then. <laughs> But yeah, uh, I am not that person. <laughs> All right, so let's get to know Edvard a little bit because he is a character like Tolkien. Most Norwegians are. Yeah. Got him. All Norwegians. Yeah. Well, oh, I was gonna say that earlier. One of the reasons I picked this is because, as I have probably mentioned before, I am of Norwegian descent. Yeah, I think it came up last week in the geography. Yes. Anyway, so. I'm of whatever descent I feel like being. <laughs> At the time. Alright, well, like Tolkien, he spoke Norwegian. <gasps> and he had a pretty tumultuous childhood. Oh. Uh, he was born on December 12th in 1863 in Lotin, Norway. I also say that even though I am Norwegian, my Norwegian is non-existent. So, <laughs> if I mispronounce things, I apologize. He was born into a middle-class family. Um, his father was a doctor, and actually, his uncle was a famous painter, and his other uncle was a famous historian. Wow. So, so he, his dad kind of was a little lame. Well, he was a very intense Christian fundamentalist, and his mother, who was 20 years younger than his father, wow. uh, died when Edward was five of tuberculosis. A few years later, his sister, Sophie, who was 15 at the time, he was 14, also died of tuberculosis. His father told him that it was divine punishment and got really depressed and was just kind of a mess of a dude. Sad. His sister, Laura, would spend her life in a mental institute. And his brother, the only one of his siblings to ever marry dies a few months after his wedding so the scream is probably not a guy going woo correct (laughs) so rough life rough childhood yeah and his father dies eventually when he's only 25 when edward is 25 okay so um he's pretty much left without family yeah it's interesting like there's a point in history where like not a third of every family dies. Mm-hmm. And were... It wasn't that long ago. Yeah, exactly. And Munch is not in that point. And Tolkien's childhood also. Yeah. Lost both his parents, you know. Yeah. My my grandma was an orphan at 11. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. We're lucky to be alive in the time that we are. <laughs> yeah. Um. So when he was about 16, he went to a year of technical school studying engineering before realizing that painting was his real passion. He attended the Royal School of Drawing in Christiana, which is now known as Oslo. Oslo. Oh, okay. And he happened to be mentored by, at the time, Norway's biggest artist, naturalist painter Christian Krog. Uh, He was inspired by the French style of realism. And his first big work was in 1885, with the sick child, a scene from his dying sister. Again, happy paintings. Yeah. Well, and it actually was quite controversial. Like, oh. people were, like, up in arms over this, like, very sad, depressing, like, scene. Yeah. And 
but like modern artists look at it and who's like and they're they you think you can feel the emotion well yeah you can feel the emotion and also just i guess very common art things now like contrasts of colors and, and spectrum and stuff like that things that are, are kind of scientific at this point yeah he are was... very pronounced even though these paintings are dark and like very depressing and stuff huh? why do you go much yeah so he was a natural a few years later he painted his associate his associate hans jaeger the leader of the Christ- christiania bohemians and that guy was kind of crazy <laughs> <laughs> Um, this new group of friends would bring more inner unrest of conflict within Munch. Mm. And he has, like, the tumultuous childhood and is, like, very into, like... I don't know, I feel like when you read about artists in during this time period, they turn against religion, they're into, um... Yeah. Things that I don't know if I want to say on the podcast, but they're just into to similar, maybe not kosher things. Yes. <laughs> At this time, he also starts writing a lot. Oh, very cool. And he is an avid journaler his whole life. He did an exhibit and won a trip to go around France for three years and study art. This is when his father dies, however, and he's so depressed and turns to alcoholism that he can't really paint for a while. Um, Eventually, he lands in Berlin... And he becomes friends with people like Gustav Wigland, who, I don't know if you're familiar, but if you go to Oslo, um, there's like a sculpture garden. It's like a very big tourist. It is a touristy thing, and it might be a local thing as well, but all of those sculptures are by this guy. Um, And other artists of the time. He um, becomes inspired by the styles of Van Gogh, Monet, Gauguin. And just, like, Impressionism in general. Yeah, I would say those are pretty uh, recognizable and good painters. (laughs) Yeah. During this time, he also begins, um, I guess it'd be like a collection would be the term. Maybe there's a better one, but it's called The Freeze of Life. And he does stills of all these scenes. And some of them are dark and depressing and others... I don't know, he just really, like, plays on emotion. And in, ni- in 1893, he begins sketches for the screen. And there are multiple versions of the screen. All by Munch? Mm-hmm, all by Munch. Interesting. So I think like some are practice. I think probably some have different mediums, stuff like that. Oh, and I will say the one that's like very popular, I guess, is mixed media where he uses oil oil crayons with beeswax and Japanese wax and casein pastels and one gum-bound paint. So it's yeah, it's a mix. That means nothing to me. <laughs> um, you got your markers, you got your colored pencils. Yeah, well, he used crayons, it looks like. And this is what he... This is what he says in his diary about the screen. I was walking along the road with two friends. The sun went down. I felt a gust of melancholy. Suddenly, the sky turned a bloody red. I stopped, leaned against the railing, tired to death, as the flaming skies hung like blood and and soared over the blue-black fjord and the city. My friends went on. I stood there trembling with anxiety, and I felt a vast, infinite scream through nature. So that's... 
Wow. <laughs> so that's the screen. Yeah. I would see them be like, wow, what a pretty sunset. Mm-hmm. And he sees it and it's the weight of the world is on his yeah. shoulders. Eventually this painting is kind of, will be recognized as like the first painting of the expressionism. Interesting. And also kind of a start of symbolism okay. as a style of painting. Um, Who comes up with the names of these painting styles? I don't know. Art critics, I yeah. guess. <laughs> as I kind of mentioned before, he struggled with alcoholism and eventually had this affair with a woman. But I feel like generally in these situations, it's like the man pining after the woman mm-hmm. and whatever. This is the opposite. This girl, her name was Tula Larson. It was like kind of stalking him. And, like, Yikes. will not leave him alone. Yeah. And no he wonder finally, he's screaming on a bridge. Yeah, he finally escapes. That's how it's put. He escapes and, like, le- leaves the country. And two years later, she comes back and is like, I'm suicidal without you. Yada, yada, yada. It ends with... This is middle name Rogelio. <laughs> it ends with him accidentally shooting the end of his finger off. Are these, like, secondhand, thirdhand stories? Ha, ha, ha. No, first hand. He shoots off his finger. Yeah, okay. But, like, why is it so... He... I don't know if he, like, meant to shoot her. He meant to shoot himself. Yeah, so what I'm asking is, like, why are you not sure? Because I didn't do that much research into oh, it. I apologize. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> cut I'll cut that. <laughs> you can keep it. It's fine. Okay, yeah. Anyways, so after that, she leaves and she marries another artist very soon after oh she has a type yeah um after that though he always wears a glove like he's very self-conscious of his hands oh interesting yeah well a few years later uh while in copenhagen he kind of passes out and he's persuaded to turn himself into like a sanatorium his left side of his body was paralyzed because he was just like in such a bad state of mind whoa and so he goes to this mental institution for a while. Yeah. Is released. And after that, his paintings look completely different. Oh, there's he's a lot got more, some therapy. Yeah, there's a lot more color, a lot more light. The subjects are different. Good. Yeah. Good for headphone. <laughs> yeah. Therapy works, people. It sure does. Um, in 1916. So throughout this time, he's like bouncing all like traveling a lot, mostly in France and Germany. Oh, that'd be nice. Yeah. At this point, he's back in Oslo, though. Like, once he leaves okay. the mental institution, he goes back home. And this is just a fun fact. In 1916, he bought a plant nursery called Eichli and lived there for nearly 30 years. That is a fun fact and he for just, you. Yeah, acres of, like, orchards and, and different types of plants and stuff. In his older years, uh, he got the Spanish flu, but survived. Good. Sad. He eventually gets an eye disease, which makes it much harder for him to paint. What's with all of these painters? Of the two we've done, yeah. Georgia O'Keeffe and Edward Munch both have had problems with eyesight. Yeah, sad. That is sad. Or maybe we all have problems with eyesight, and it just matters it less just, because we're not yeah. artists. <laughs> a, a touch more tragic for people that create beautiful art. Mm-hmm. Okay, another common thread between our two guys... In Germany, this is when 
Nazis are the signing. Nazis are back. Yeah, yeah, the Nazis are back. I hate those guys. And like I said before, he really fit into Berlin, so a lot of his work is like displayed in Germany. Okay. And they thought that his they deemed it like not appropriate. Classic Nazis. So they sent it back to Norway, and it just got auctioned off. That's good. At least they didn't destroy it or yeah. burn it. And then eventually, Nazis occupied Norway. And when that happened, he literally just locked himself in his house and didn't leave. <laughs> like, he wanted nothing to do with the Nazi party. That's good. Yeah, so I think he just kind of was like, yeah. And also, he's he's a pretty big introvert and also already doesn't really like going out to things. But oh. while locked up, he... Well, locked in his house, <laughs> not in prison. Uh, he made a lot of self-portraits. And oh. you can kind of see... Um, the theme of, like, a man approaching death and not in a depressing way, just in a way. This one's pretty spooky. Yeah, so there's there's some, like, deep meaning behind that. This one? Mm-hmm. Where they said, instead of, like, being proud, he, like, shoved himself. I didn't really agree with what the people were saying, but again, I don't have the artistic eye. Yeah. But essentially, he's, like, scrunched up in, in a corner and... This is called self-portrait between the clock and the bed painting. That um, we're looking at now, yeah. Yeah, but for whatever reason, that means that he didn't live a full life. So <laughs> it, it is, yeah, it is kind of melancholy and sad. Yeah, but you yeah. can see that it's a lot lighter than his earlier paintings. Yes, I would agree. He died peacefully in January 1944, and because he had no family, he donated all of his work to the city of Oslo. That included 1,150 paintings. Wow. How do you have the time? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, 17,800 prints. Oh, I forgot to mention, while he's in Paris, he becomes, like, very into, like, printing and, like, graphic art. So, that's kind of fun. Interesting, yeah. He's the uh, first graphic graphic artist. Probably not, but <laughs> probably not the first. Uh, 4,500 watercolors and drawings. 13 sculptures, plus all of his writings and literary notes. You're welcome, Oslo. Yeah. Because of all of that work, the city decided to create a museum, and they called it the Munch Museum, which was dedicated in 1963. They should have called it the Munchseum. Hmm. That should have been there. That should have been there. Now, if you think my report is over, you are oh so wrong. Oh. Because... Little life after death. The painting has its own crazy story. Oh, is it Mona Lisa-esque? No. Okay. <laughs> like I said before, there's two versions of, of the screen. Okay. Or yeah. There's many versions of the screen. Yes, yes. Um, one is located in the Munch Museum. The what? One of the screens. It's located where? In the Munch Museum. The Munch Museum. Perfect. Thank you. <clears throat> yeah. I love that you rolled your eyes. Anytime. I do it all the time, <laughs> according to you and my father. <laughs> yeah. And the other one is located in the National Gallery and also. In 1994, the day of the opening ceremonies of the Lillehammer Olympics, mm. two men break a window into the museum, oh, no, no. cut a wire, take the scream. And oh, that's... 
securing it was one window and one wire? Mm-hmm. They leave a note that says, thousand thanks for the bad security. Jeez. <laughs> we so polite. Yeah. A Norwegian anti-abortion group took credit for the theft and demanded an anti-abortion film be televised. They ended up not being the ones, and a few days later, another group demanded a $1 million ransom. That was also a false claim. Um, on May 7th, so like three months later, the painting was recovered and four men were arrested with the connection, one of which was previously in prison after stealing Munch's The Vampire in 1988. <laughs> Just couldn't keep his hands off of the Munch. Yeah. Um, I'm glad that that ended well, like they got the painting back. Because you hear about, what's that one? The Rosalie Evelyn Garden or something? Yeah, the Gardner, Isabel Gardner. The one in Boston that is like Rembrandt's only seascape. And they yeah, never found all of it. these things. Yeah. yeah. Biggest art theft in history. Still nothing come back from it. Yeah. In August of 2004, the version of the screen that was held in the Munch Museum was also stolen. Oh, no. <laughs> along with his painting, The Madonna. Two years later, three wow. men. Madonna. Looks very good for her age. <laughs> Different Madonna. Ah. Two years later, three men were convicted of the theft, and both paintings were returned, but with slight damage, unfortunately. Just like a little nicks and Yeah, I mean, that, like that that took the grade from a 10 to like an 8.4 or something. Yeah. Tragic. And I read somewhere, I saw somewhere, but I had to like cut this off at some point. Yeah. <laughs> that that was stolen to distract from like a police officer being killed or something like it was a diversion gotcha but that could have totally been a lie and i didn't look into it felt felt like a road i didn't want to go down if you're interested look it up yeah um and just kind of a fun fact in 2012 another version of the scream was sold for 119.9 million dollars to a private collector that's a lot for a like the third version, if that even is. Yeah, I think they're. That. I think they're pretty similar. Okay. Like, I mean, again, I'm not an artist, but I assume it takes a couple tries, or you know, like there might it's be really a good. different use of media or like a slight yeah. variation of color. I never think of that. Do a lot of artists like repaint their ideas over and over again? I I don't know. Yeah. Last fun fact. It was discovered a few years ago in the corner of one of the versions of the screen. I couldn't find which one. There's a tiny inscription of eight words written in Norwegian that says, could only have been painted by a madman. Spooky. Yeah. And so they did some research and most people, there's a couple theories. One is that like a vandal wrote that. Another is that in 1895 two years after Munch painted it he went somewhere and got into a debate with this guy who I don't know why his opinion matters so much his name was Johan Scharfenberg um they got into an argument and told him that called him a madman and then it lines up that he goes home and then in like writes that on his painting and that that really i guess deeply hurt him because he talks about it for the rest of his life like in his diary oh no so just just another example of kind of like tortured artist Mm -hmm. yeah i 
kind of remember when I was younger, it could have been like in 2004 when the second one was stolen, hearing that this Norwegian painting, like this iconic painting had been like stolen and then found. Yeah. So I just, when I was trying to think of something to talk about, I was like, maybe there's a story there. And there was. So do you want to look at some of this stuff? On podcast? Yeah, just sure. a couple of it. So you saw the scream. So this is his first one of his sister, Sophie. Pretty dark, mm-hmm. but it, but like good colors nonetheless. Yeah, that's what you talk about. Like there's like red in the hand and the hair and he puts it like against a green background and green blanket. Yeah. Stuff like that. The other thing they said was he was kind of the first. I, th- I think this is what expressionism is. I should have probably looked into it more, but... It's like people can get degrees yeah. in specific art things, so yeah, that's kind of hard. excuse us for for not. Yeah, kind of skipping over some stuff. He would focus on emotions by kind of like blurring the background and like really focusing on faces. Oh, uh, kind of like so, portrait mode on your iPhone. Yeah, so instead of focusing on the situation the person is in, they're focused on how that person is feeling. Yeah. If that makes sense. That's really interesting. Oh, this one. Oh, the dance of life. This is that Tula Larson that like stalked him. And there's like a meaning bunch of, of different like versions of her. Innocence in the white and then this like sultry red. And her like red dress is like encapsulating the man and then like she's in grief and stuff. So there's that. Here's Madonna. Scandalous. Very scandalous. Yeah, here's his later... The scream especially, but in all of their faces, it's very skeletal. Mm -hmm. Like, you can see a skull more than you can see a face, which I'm sure is intentional. Look at this one. Yeah, that's just a skull. This one's called The Deathbed. This one's called Death in the Sick Room. So... It makes me think of The Sixth Sense with the final... Kind of one of the final scenes. Yeah. This is the one of the first things he painted after he came out of the mental institution. The sun? Yes. It's very good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like that a lot, actually. Yeah. So, and I, like, I like his, I, I think a he's a good artist. Yeah. It's I, just I think, yeah. dark. And I think especially after, like, researching things. Oh, that's not one. It, it makes them darker. Yeah. To me. Uh, I would agree. But to know his life and, like, what he went through. He has a reason. Gives gives the darkness Ooh. meaning. Anyway, that is my literature topic, or my art topic. Very, very well done, babe. Thank you so much. That was really interesting. Um, Before we move on, I wanted to ask, do you know what your Norwegian name, family name was? Uh, so I have two. Because my mom is mostly, like, she's 75% Norwegian. Yeah. So, uh, Mushta. Oh, Mushta. Uh-huh, and... I have a moustache. Is there a new relation? No. And English pronunciation... <clears throat> excuse me. Munster? Is Morstead. Morstead. Mm. So we didn't know how to pronounce it, actually. Until, until we visited? Until we went to Norway, and we were trying to find, like, some... Do some family history stuff, and they were like, Morstead? And we, like, showed them the spelling, and they're like, Oh, Morstead! Like, That's yeah. really cool. And, um... Not really trivia-related, though. I was just curious. That's cool. Maybe yeah. there's some more studs out there that are like, oh, maybe we're related. Yeah. I was kind of interested in going to see The Scream when we were there, but it just didn't end up happening. Like, we didn't spend a ton of time in 
Oslo. Gotcha. And my other uh, Norwegian last name is Esplen. Esplen. Mm-hmm. Very cool. I don't have any names. <laughs> now to wrap up the episode, we will roll a die and choose our topic for next week. Five. It is science and nature. Oh, seriously? <laughs> yeah. That's good stuff. All right. Well, I guess we're starting the rotation backwards. Right back, started. Right back in the beginning. Okay. All right. Well, if you liked this, subscribe and tell a friend. Yeah, we'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you would like to suggest our next topic for either science or nature, or just have a question for us, please email us at trivialconpod at gmail.com. And finally, give us a five-star review, because we deserve it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you again, and bye. Bye.